We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. Go there to John chapter 3. Growing up, uh, and this won't surprise many of you, but growing up my mom read to me quite often. But there was one book in particular that she read to me when I was a little boy that as she read it to me, and especially as we got to the end of the book, the book just haunted me. And in many ways, the book still haunts me. And the reason this book haunts me, it's not like a scary book. The reason why this book haunts me is because I couldn't, even as a little boy, relate to the main person in the story. Which, in fact, it turns out this is a real story, a true story about a man who, in many ways, lived as a man among boys. This past week, my mom actually read that same book to my daughter. And as they were reading it and sort of weeping towards the end of the book, they began to discuss the book and their questions went in the same direction that I remember when I was a young boy. How could this man be so good, so loving, so gracious, so forgiving, so heavenly? You read the book and you realize, how can this man be real? Now, the book in question is a book called Amos Fortune. I'd put your hand up if you've read it, but my guess is that there are probably just Carol and me are the only ones that have read this book. But I promise you, if you read it, you will be haunted by this book. And it's a true story about a slave who purchased his own freedom and then purchased a half dozen other uh, women and their freedom. Right? He didn't use his, his liberty, his freedom just for his own ends. He just saved up and saved up and saved up. Didn't spend any of his money on himself because he wanted to purchase more and more people's freedom. Actually, at one point, his wife hid the money that he'd been saving up for years and years. His wife hid it because he was, she was terrified that if a, a need came up in the community, he would probably just give it all away. And so she hid it knowing the heart of this man, the heart of her husband. To just kind of put Amos in perspective, one day he was, he was working as a, as, a, uh, as a tanner, and he had a, uh, a customer came in, and they kind of agreed on a purchase price, and he said, no, I'm, I'm going to pay less than that. And then he grabbed the, the, the money and just threw it at Amos. It, you know, the money just kind of landed on his chest and then on the floor, and then he, in the sort of indignity of the moment, in the shame, injustice, humility of the moment, he had to stoop down and pick up that money. And at that moment, the author talks about how just anger and injustice just was fueling in Amos Fortune's heart. And it did all day long. And so when he was going to go back home, he knew he could not go back home with such hate in his heart. And so he he started going on a walk, and then eventually he sat on a boulder, and he saw a flame, a, a fire that was next to him. And as he looked at that flame, he realized that hate in the human heart was like a fire. And so he waited, staring at that fire until the hatred in his heart was extinguished. I mean, you read that as a little boy and you're like, I mean, the, the, unf- the littlest unfairness in my own heart, and I'm enraged. And here's this guy living in an unjust world. I mean, here's a, a man among boys. So how do you get Amos Fortune? 
in a world of cruelty, in a world of injustice, in a world that largely hated him, how do you make sense of Amos' fortune? That's the question that haunted me. Well, that question, in some ways, is answered in our text today in John chapter 3. How do you have that sort of inner peace? How do you have that inner renewal? That, how, do you, how can you change? How do you feel peace when trials come, when hardship arises? How can you have the power to extinguish sin in your life? We all wonder sometimes if people change. Today we get our answer. Jesus is going to interact with an interesting man named Nicodemus. And what we find is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, Every week I give you a big idea. The the big idea is behind me on the screen, and it's simply this. It's going to be broken up roughly into three parts, so the first part is the longest. And it's this, that newness of life only comes by the Spirit through faith in Jesus because of God's love. Trinitarian. I, I rarely get the Trinity in the big idea, but it's here today. All right, guys? You're welcome. All right, turn with me. I'm going to read chapter 3, starting in verse 1, all the way to chapter, or sorry, all the way to verse 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know, or you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clear 
so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, go back to verse 1. Verse 1, we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus. And the thing that we need to know about him, John tells us, verse 1, he's a Pharisee. Now, Pharisee isn't a very positive word even now, right? If, if I were to call you a Pharisee, that would probably be an insult. But in many ways, back then, the Pharisees were the good guys. They, they were the moral people. They were the conservatives. They were the scrupulous. They, they were the good guys in society. You might have hated the Pharisees, but deep down you probably wanted to be one. And so here's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's also called the ruler of the Jews. And then in verse 10, if you see, he's called the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus is no ordinary Pharisee. He's one of the rulers of Jews. He sat on the supreme court, the sort of religious supreme court of his day, the Sanhedrin. And he's also a teacher of Israel, meaning that he's probably one of the best biblical scholars in Israel at that time. So so Nicodemus is no ordinary Joe. He's rich, he's brilliant. He's got the best education, the best schooling, the best status in society. He's the best and brightest. Verse 2. That's Nicodemus, but look at the sort of the setting. It says that he comes to Jesus by night. Now, why by night? I mean, it could be that he's embarrassed. It could be that he kind of kind of goes cloak and dagger. He wants to sort of have a conversation with Jesus off book. I don't think that's what's going on here. Now, that's probably part of it. But John, our author, loves imagery, loves symbols. He loves to layer truth upon truth. And we've seen this in chapter 1. We're going to see this again at the end of chapter 3. That John often talks about light, physical light, and physical darkness. But he's not just talking about physical light and darkness. You go deeper and he's talking about spiritual realities as well, right? So the darkness just doesn't represent nighttime. The darkness represents that you're blind to realities, to spiritual realities. It's not just that you're enlightened. It's that you're spiritually enlightened. And so I I think John is intentionally kind of toying with us. Nicodemus comes by way of the night because though Nicodemus thinks he's enlightened... Though he thinks he understands what's going on, in fact, he's in the dark. And we see that starting in verse 2. He calls Jesus rabbi. He says, uh, we know, and it's interesting that he says the plural. He, he comes individually, but he says, we, like collectively, know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, I've figured it out. I've evaluated the situation. I've heard about what happened up in Canaan when you turned water into wine. I've seen maybe even some miracles that you did in Jerusalem. I have figured it out. You must be a prophet or you must be, have some special relationship with God. I've evaluated you and I know And I'll kind of collectively say, we know God's working through you, Jesus. 
And so he comes thinking that he's enlightened, thinking that he understands what's going on, thinking that he has an inside track on these sort of spiritual realities. And it makes sense. Nicodemus has a PhD from Harvard. I mean, if anyone could figure it out, if anyone could understand and kind of put the pieces together when Jesus is doing these miracles, these signs, these wonders, he's chasing people out of the temple, surely it's the greatest biblical scholar, the greatest teacher, the person who's probably memorized most of the Old Testament. It's got to be Nicodemus. But Nicodemus comes by way of night because Nicodemus, as we're soon going to find out, has the blackness of ignorance in his heart. And so what follows is this dialogue. It's actually the, the whole structure of this part of, uh, of chapter 3. It's structured with a dialogue, right? Nicodemus talks, then Jesus, then Nicodemus, then Jesus. Nicodemus, Jesus is broken up, and you see it, this kind of repetition of truly, truly, I say to you. It's Jesus getting Nicodemus' attention. And so when Jesus comes to evaluate Jesus, Jesus turns the table and says, which I think is, in, is instructive to Nicodemus, and it's instructive to all of us, No, no, no. We don't come to Jesus and evaluate him. Jesus comes to us and evaluates us. Truly, truly, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's this sort of expectation, this desire, this yearning at that time for the kingdom to come. And Jesus says, oh, you want that kingdom to come? Well, if you want that kingdom to come, the only way to enter that kingdom, the only way to see that kingdom, the only way to experience that kingdom is to be reborn, to be born again. And Nicodemus replies, how can this be? How can someone who's old be born again? How can you enter a second time into his mother's womb? I mean, it's a good question. But I don't think it's a good question the way we we often read it. Okay, I don't think Nicodemus is a crazy literalist who doesn't know how to spot a metaphor. We've already said Nicodemus is bright. He's brilliant. Maybe the most brilliant. He can spot a metaphor. Nicodemus isn't like saying, hey, Jesus, um, did you forget to go to sex ed? Like, this is not how this works, right? Nicodemus is not like turning to Jesus and being like, did you go to public school or something, Jesus? Like, you can't be born in a mother's womb twice, only once. I don't think that is what's going on here at all. I think Nicodemus in part understands what's going on. He understands what Jesus is asking, and he's saying, Jesus, you're promising too much. You see, when the kingdom would come, there was an expectation that righteousness would reign, that justice would reign, but it was thought of in corporate terms, in communal terms. And Jesus is talking about personal renewal, individual renewal. That the individual, that when this kingdom comes, that the individual must first and foremost be renewed. It's the language of regeneration, cleansing people, rewriting someone's story, changing them from the inside out, giving them a new heart. I mean, it's one thing to change a nation. It's one thing to change a community. But to change a person, their heart, their behaviors, their destiny? I think Nicodemus is subtly criticizing Jesus and saying, you are offering more than you should be offering. It's too crazy of a reality. 
Well, Jesus, verse 5, he repeats himself. He explains further to Nicodemus. Look there at verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, now, you might think Jesus is saying two separate things, but we know he's not. He's just saying the same thing using a different metaphor. So if you look at verse 3, I mean, if you just kind of compared them, both times he says, truly, truly, I say to you. And then he says, unless one is born, first of born again, and then the other one being born of water and spirit, but the, the language of being born is the same. And then it says, you cannot see or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's basically the same thing, only changing a few words, really just changing the metaphor. Jesus changes the metaphor for being born again to being born of water and the spirit. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Who's Jesus talking to? Someone who's extremely religious and who knows their Bible, who knows the Old Testament. He's talking to an Old Testament scholar. And so when Nicodemus doesn't get it, he changes the metaphor and goes straight old school, Old Testament on Nicodemus. Go down to verse 9. I think you get a flavor of this once again, right? Nicodemus says once again, like, how can these things be? And Jesus answers, are, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Here's the Stephen unauthorized kind of paraphrase of that. Jesus is basically telling Nicodemus, you among all people should understand what I'm talking about with the new birth. You among all people should understand what it means to be born by water and spirit. You, Nicodemus, uniquely should get it. Why should he uniquely get it? Because Jesus, when talking about water and spirit, he's alluding to one of the most famous parts of the Old Testament related to the New Covenant. And then if you look at verse 8, there's this talk about wind. Jesus is talking about wind. So we have water, spirit, being reborn, and wind. Those four words, those four images, they are woven together in one place and one place alone in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 and 37. If you won't go there with me, I just want to point this out to us. Jesus is alluding to the Old Testament to make his point about what it looks like and how a person enters the kingdom of God. Ezekiel 36, I mean, starting in verse 25, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's our water. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all of your idols that will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Water, spirit. And I'll put it within you and I will restore the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's Ezekiel with this prophecy that God gives him about this new covenant that when the king would come, inaugurate his kingdom, that the spirit would be poured out and it would be like water and spirit. There would be a transformation, a cleanliness, and a newness of heart. And then if you flip over to the next chapter, Ezekiel has this crazy, trippy vision. God takes him to this valley and it's dry bones, meaning dead people, dead bodies. And he tells Ezekiel, prophesy to them that they might live. And Ezekiel's like, I can't do that. Only you could do that. And he goes, exactly. Verse 7, God says, just do it anyways. It's my power that's going to do this. Verse 7, so I prophesy, this is Ezekiel, 
as I was commanded by God, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there was sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded to me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. Do you see, Ezekiel is weaving all four things, wind, breath, death to life, spirit, water. He's weaving all of those images and words to describe what's going to happen in the new covenant when that new covenant is poured out. And so Jesus picks up that thread, weaves them all together, and talking about this newness of life, entering the kingdom, he says, don't you know Ezekiel 36 and 37? I mean, Nicodemus was brilliant, but in this sense, he's biblically dyslexic. He missed it. He should have known, uniquely should have known, that when the kingdom was come, it would inaugurate a time of inner renewal, newness of heart, cleansing from within. And he didn't understand it, does he? He's lost. But to his credit, corporate renewal, that makes sense. I mean, to Nicodemus's credit, he must be wondering, I mean, can you teach an old dog new tricks? Do people really change? Can God really change a person's heart? Renew them? Nicodemus isn't getting it, is he? So there at verse 6, Jesus uses another sort of analogy to get his point across. Look there in verse 6. The, the idea is that um, the, the idea of being born again, he says, is sort of like the analogy of likeness. So, so um, you know, flesh gives way to flesh, or a horse births horse. Right? That, that's how this stuff works, right? So if you, if you take a, a poodle and you made it with a golden retriever, you don't get a dragon. You get an annoying little puppy. I would know. Flesh gives way to flesh. And so the question is, well, Nicodemus is asking, like, okay, well, if you can only enter this kingdom through spiritual means, through a spiritual renewal, after God has spiritually awoken you, well, then there needs to be, Jesus is saying, you need to be spiritually awakened. You can't manipulate this. You can't just say, oh, I can manufacture this sort of thing. No, God must externally do this, change someone's heart, and then you can enter the kingdom. So flesh gives way to flesh, spirit to spirit. So if you want a spiritual reality, you must have a spiritual source. God must intervene. Now, for a second, put yourself in Nicodemus' shoe. Can you just imagine how offensive this is? Nicodemus uniquely has the merit to get into the kingdom, right? He's from the right family. He goes to church every Sunday. He sings all the right songs, has all the right theology. He is uniquely merited. I mean, he he doesn't do all of the vices he's not supposed to do. He does all the virtuous things he's supposed to do. Nicodemus should get into the kingdom. If anyone does, he gets into the kingdom. And here we find out that it doesn't matter his family. It doesn't matter that he's a Pharisee. It doesn't matter all of the good things he's done or the bad things he's avoided. He still doesn't get into the kingdom. He can't earn it. 
He can't deserve it. Everything in Nicodemus' life entitled him to the kingdom. And now it's slipping through his fingers. Nothing he could do about it. I mean, he's tried everything, but his everything isn't good enough. So once again, look, verse 10. Jesus points out to Nicodemus that he's still sort of not getting this. And so Jesus now makes his final kind of explanation to Nicodemus about this new birth. And now he doesn't just like allude to the Old Testament. He's going to point directly to it. But but right before he does, Jesus says, okay, now before I kind of give you a Bible lesson and connect the Old Testament to the New Testament, before I do that, he says, I uniquely, this is Jesus, I uniquely am from heaven, so I uniquely have the right to speak into these realities. And so sort of after claiming and, and making his authority known, he cites Numbers 21, verse 4 9. Now, Aaron read it earlier, but uh, go there. You're going to need to see this. Because kind of, whenever the Old Testament is, is alluded to or cited or connected to, you should wonder, what is the New Testament author doing with connecting this text, John 3, with Numbers 21? So verse 4, they, they travel. This is God's people in the wilderness traveling to the promised land, and they traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea, and they go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on their way. Verse 5, they spoke against God, against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. You ever been on a road trip with like four kids, okay, who are screaming, I'm hungry, there's no food, I have to pee, Please pull over. Are we there yet? Can we just go back home? You ever, you ever been on Like, Moses is on the worst road trip ever. And if I was Moses, I'd want to pull over the caravan and lecture, but actually Moses isn't driving this. God is, isn't he? God's the one who's leading the caravan to the promised land by the pillar of fire. And so God does something. He intervenes in a very peculiar way. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on the pole Then, when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, the the image is frightening. I mean, the other day I was mowing my grass and a little tiny little snake jumped out on me. And I freaked out and just killed it with my mower. All right? Maybe that wasn't the right thing or the Christian thing to do. But snakes, no thank you. All right? So this, this scene creeps me out uniquely. Maybe you as well. And this people of God, in light of their sin, in light of the judgment for their sin, God sends venomous snakes, and this is the reality. These snakes are just all around them, and they're not just snakes like in my yard, which I assume, though I haven't been bitten. I mean, I just assume poison, kill. But here, we know that these snakes are poisonous, and people are getting sick, they are feverish, and some of them are dying. 
It's a frightening image. But though God sent these snakes as manifestation of the judgment for their sin, their grumbling, their discontentedness, God does something else. You see, he not, just, he not only judges his people, he provides a provision for them to be saved even though they're judged. Do you notice the provision? A bronze snake that if they look at, they would be healed. And so here in John 3, Jesus is sort of leaving, or uh, John is leaving uh, nothing to guessing. Right? The application of that story to Jesus, it's pretty clear, and John wants us to be crystal clear on this. That just as Moses lifted up the snake and the people were healed from the sin of these snakes or caused by these snakes. So too now, Jesus is raised up. And the gaze of faith in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, the gaze of faith, not, not on a bronze snake, but on Jesus himself, leads to healing. So what Jesus is saying is simply this. You don't get into the kingdom of God by being good. And you're not excluded from the kingdom of God if you're bad. Your goodness or your badness does not include you or exclude you. So how do you get into the kingdom? How do you go from death to life? How can you be renewed? How can you change? How can you have a new heart? Well, the principle in Moses' day, in Numbers, is the same principle for us. It's the one lifted up. It's believing in the provision God gives to us. You see, in the Old Testament, the provision was a snake. But there is a far greater provision that God now gives. And it's Jesus Christ. And we wonder, or at least I wonder... In numbers, as people are getting bitten by snakes, I wonder, though Moses says, here's the provision, just look at the snake, I wonder if God's people are like, that's stupid. Look at a bronze snake and the venom comes out. That doesn't, that's not how, that's not how science works. Like, that doesn't make any sense. My guess is they're like, no. Probably what we need to do is bunch together and, and, and proactively go after the snakes and try to kill them and, you know, f- f- figure out how we can, you know, get an antidote to this sort of thing. I'm guessing they tried to, to do all sorts of things in light of their problem, but God had already given them the provision for their problem. The question was, would they be desperate enough to accept the provision that God would give them? And that's our, that's our situation as well. You see, baked into the problem, the problem of our sin, and the judgment that comes because of our sin, God, like in Numbers, and here in John 3, God bakes in a solution. And the solution we find later in John. It's sort of alluded to here with this idea of being raised up, but it comes into clarity in chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, I... And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all people to myself. And then John, I love this, inserts this. Okay, what does he mean by this? Well, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Thanks, John. So God provides a snake to look up and be healed, but in a far greater way. He now provides his son, who is now lifted up on a cross, who dies for sinners. And the look at a faith, not perfect faith, not complete faith, but faith, which is saying, I'm not going to rely on myself or my many, many ready-made ways of getting myself out of this jam. I'm not going to look to myself to save me. I'm not going to look at my badness or my goodness. I'm going to just look at and rely on the provision that God has provided for me in light of my sins. And Jesus is telling them, that's how you enter the kingdom. God is going to provide. And the provision that God gives to enter the kingdom is God's own son. That's how God's going to provide for and cover the sins of the world. Especially, I think, in light of Nicodemus. And I think this is why it's hard for Nicodemus. I think nothing keeps a man or a woman out of the kingdom of God more than their apparent goodness. I mean, just think of the principle. If you don't think you've been bitten by a snake, if you don't think you're sick, you're not looking at the bronze snake, are you? Only the person desperate enough to think, I'm sick, I'm dying, is going to look at the bronze snake. And so too with us. Sort of the the prerequisite to the kingdom of God is an acknowledgement of sickness, sin, soul, sickness, that not everything is right. And so Nicodemus being good, we sometimes think of, you know, if there's two people, one who went to jail and the other person who's just an upstanding citizen, we're like, look at the person in jail. Isn't, well, that's a crazy testimony to God. I'm like, no. The other person seems to be more of the miracle. Goodness, our apparent morality, how we've got our life together, that can cause spiritual blindness like nothing else. And yet, Jesus is clear that the offer of eternal life, verse 15, the offer of being born again, verse 3, these are all just different ways of talking about the same reality. The offer of being born by the Spirit, verse 5. The offer of enlightenment, verse 20. Of a changed life, verse 21. Of not being condemned, verse 18. That offer, that glorious end, it doesn't come by being good or deserving it. It comes from the free offer that God provides in light of our sin and the judgment that should come in light of our sin. Which I think begs a question. This is the million-dollar question. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God provide a provision in light of sin? Nicodemus doesn't ask this. But Jesus answers it, so I think he intuitively knows this is the million-dollar question. I mean, these days a lot of people talk about the wrath of God and judgment and think, like, that's a difficult doctrine to to talk about, God's anger, God's wrath. For me, that makes perfect sense. I don't think that's a hard doctrine in one sense. 
because when I look out in the world and when I look at my own heart, I'm like, no, that's what I deserve. That's easy. The question for me isn't God's wrath. The question is, why would God do anything but be wrathful towards me? Why would God forgive me? And so, look at verse 16. Why would God do this? Why would God provide a means for humanity to enter God's kingdom through Jesus Christ by faith? Verse 16. Fourth word in in my translation. It's a sort of four-letter word, but it's the best four-letter word. Love. You see that there? You all know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God provides his son as the solution to our sin such that if you believe in that son and gaze upon him, you're going to be healed, renewed, given a new heart, a new reality, a new identity, a new community. And all of this comes because God so loved the world, he gave his son. So the object of his love, the display of God's love, or if you've ever wondered, does God love me or like me? Don't look at yourself. Look at God's giving of the son. That's the display of God's love. Not in our apparent loveliness, although I think all my children are lovely, But that's not the object of love there in verse 16. Or the display of love in verse 16. Or the definition of love in verse 16. Love is God's extent of saving you by sending his only son. I don't think it's wrath that's that difficult. I think love is much more difficult. In a world where evilness exists, in a world where evil exists in our own hearts, why would God love me? And yet, here we have the free offer of the gospel. And it is motivated, it's sort of marinated, because I'm going to barbecue tonight, so I have that image in my mind. It's marinated in love. So how does a man, how does a woman enter the kingdom of God? It only comes through the Spirit. It's like the wind. It only comes by the Spirit. As you look and gaze in faith, as you put your your reliance and trust in God's provision of Jesus Christ, and if you've ever wondered why all this takes place, well, The answer, verse 16 and following, is that he does it because he loves us. Now, if you're wondering, if you're kind of secretly sort of a pragmatist and wondering, yeah, but does this really change people? And did this even do anything for Nicodemus? Is there any hope for a self-righteous Pharisee? Or is there any hope for us? Well, I'm going to spoil something. I, I hate those preachers who are like, I'm going to talk about a movie and spoil the ending. Well, I'm going to a little bit spoil the end of the Gospel of John. If you go to the end, the end of John, in 
we read of something amazing in chapter 19, verse 38. Jesus has died. His body has just been taken down from the cross. And we read of this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Verse 39. Nicodemus. You're like, well, there's lots of Nicodemuses, right? Who earlier came to Jesus by night. Thanks, thanks, John. That Nicodemus is with Joseph of Arimathea right after Jesus' death, taking the body of Jesus just so we know who he is. And then it says he came bringing a mixture of mirth and oil, about 75 pounds in weight. Talk about discipleship right there. 70, I mean, that's a lot of money and a lot of weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen clothes with spices, as is a burial custom of the Jews. So is there any hope? Is there any hope for a self-righteous Pharisee? Yes. And is there any hope for us? Absolutely. And he's not alone. When I began, I I told you a story about a man named Amos Fortune. I left one detail out. The most important detail about Amos Fortune. The detail that explains, I think, in large degree, how he could live so heavenly in this life. He was, first and foremost, a Christian. He was remade, reborn. He had a new heart, regenerate. And today, if you go to Joffrey, New Hampshire, you can find a gravestone. And it's the gravestone of Amos Fortune. This is what it says. Sacred to the memory of Amos Fortune, November 17, 1801. He was born free in Africa, became a slave in America, At great cost, he purchased his liberty, and he professed Christ. And in so doing, he lived reputably, and he died hopefully. That's what his gravestone says. How do you get Amos Fortune? How do you get Nicodemus? How do you get any of us? The wind blows where it wishes. The question is, has the wind blown on you? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we, we are so grateful for the provision that you have provided in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray now that we would deepen our trust and reliance on you. And that we would experience that newness of life. Not fully, that's in the world to come, but partially. That the inbreaking of your spirit in our lives changes us. So Lord, may we never be a people who believe that someone endued with the spirit cannot change. We thank you for the change that you brought in our lives. We pray, even as we pray, knowing that this is painful, 
and hard, we pray that you would change us even more into your son's image. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.